Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. This is our last Sunday in this Gospel. And if I remember correctly, which is more and more doubtful these days, I think this is number 70 as we finish. And for those of you wondering, as you look at this in your Bible, um, we will be cutting off the book in chapter 16, verse 8, and not address the text at the end, which you notice has brackets about it, uh, for some very good reasons. After six days... Six hours, excuse me, on the cross, Jesus has died. With a loud cry, Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which Luke records. And then we read in verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And notably, there were also women looking on from a distance, we see, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, verses 40 and 41. Mary Magdalene, you might remember, might already know, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. We see that in Luke chapter 8. And along with many others, they had provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their own means, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. Well, this can get confusing. There are a lot of Marys in the Gospels. But it's easy to keep them straight. Um, She's usually mentioned along with her sons, which means her sons must have been well-known in the early church as well, for Mark especially to have mentioned them. And then there's Salome, Who's she? She's the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. And she is really all over the place in the Gospels. Now, these three godly followers of Christ had been at the forefront of those who selflessly helped support Jesus and his disciples as they ministered especially in Galilee, but also they followed Christ into Jerusalem and they were here um, at the crucifixion. The only disciple that we know who had been there at the cross was John because Jesus had spoken to him. And now we come to Jesus' burial and his resurrection 
in the rest of chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, and in the first eight verses of chapter 16. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 15, 42 through 16, verses, verse 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the day, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, what nobody who loved and followed Jesus thought would or could happen has now happened. Jesus has died, really died. A man we've never heard of before now enters the scene out of love and devotion and the desire to do the right thing. Who is this Joseph of Arimathea? Well, we read here in Mark that he's a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. The council here refers to the 70, the Sanhedrin, the spiritual and political rulers of Israel. 
Luke adds that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Important. Both in Matthew and John, we read that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, he was a secret disciple in this powerful group who did not consent to the charge against Jesus. And we learn from Matthew that he was also rich. We can tell that because this is his tomb, and that's his plan to use his tomb. Mark explains the day of preparation, you might notice, to his non-Jewish readers as being the day before the Sabbath. So Jesus died just about 3 p.m. 3 p.m. And by their law, the Jews were not allowed to bury their own on the Sabbath. Well, when did the Sabbath begin? It began at sundown, sunset on Friday. So 3 p.m. on Friday, Jesus died. They didn't have much time. They had to get him off of the cross. And that means down, washed, prepared, and buried. So, out of the blue, literally, comes Joseph. He took courage, we read, which means it took some boldness, obviously, to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. You need to think about that. What did it take to do that? Because he now was going to be openly known and, and identified as one of Jesus' followers. So this is an extraordinary act of love and devotion. Now remember his position in the Sanhedrin itself. The 70 religious rulers who demanded that Jesus had to be crucified. He wasn't just a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a prominent and respected member. There would be serious consequences for him. Serious consequences for him now. He had not consented to their decision to execute Jesus, and now he wanted to respectfully bury him. When Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate, you notice, was very surprised that Jesus had already died. Why? Because it usually took a whole lot longer for someone to die from being crucified. It was a slow, horrid death, we've already learned, that was designed on purpose to lengthen the amount of time a person had to suffer in order to humiliate them. And we see that same centurion who knew Jesus was the Son of God summoned to confirm Jesus' death. And going to Pilate like this, we've got to sum up, was just very, very dangerous for him. No, we don't really know Pilate's state of mind here. No telling how Pilate was handling 
being coerced by the Jews to crucify someone that he knew was innocent. The political ramifications didn't bode well for him as the Roman governor, whose position was becoming more and more precarious as the Jews and their hatred of him and all things Roman was liable to keep igniting all sorts of riots and revolts at every turn. And we know from history that that's actually what happened in the time afterwards. Maybe since Jesus was now dead, it would calm things down for a while. So he more or less tells Joseph, sure, take the body. Matthew tells us in a very concise way how Jesus was buried. And if we put all the gospel accounts together, we see that somehow, with help, Joseph took the body down. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night in John 19, brings a mixture of myrrh and alloys, aloes and about the weight of this was altogether 75 pounds, which is recorded by John. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in a place where he was crucified, we read, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, John's account. They laid it in Joseph's own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And Joseph rolled a great stone against the entrance to the tomb. That's in our verse 46. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, we also read, saw where he was laid. Joseph and Nicodemus give us quite an example here of devotion and courage. We also have to recognize that in the face of their own confusion and despair, along with everyone else who had followed Christ, at seeing their Messiah actually die on the cross. This meant something special. So, what happens now? We always look for what's happening. What did they do? Well, we have to face this as these followers and disciples did. We could call it an in-between time, in between the death and burial of Christ and Sunday morning. Matthew gives us some important information of one thing that happened. In Matthew 27, beginning at verse 62, we read the following. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud, Jesus' claim that he would rise from the dead, will be worse than the first, Jesus' claim that he was the Messiah. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure. How? By sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sealing the stone was using special kind of gooey substance, waxy, something that would last, like they sealed letters, same idea, between the stone itself and up against the tomb itself, so they could tell if it was ever broken. What about this guard? How many of you have seen and depicted in some drama, movie, story that there's one kind of wimpy guard standing there with a big sword. This is not one person. This is a unit of between six and 12 Roman soldiers. This picture, you see, seems to get even darker on Saturday as the arrangements are made to make sure that no one would even think of trying to steal or do something with Jesus' body. But you can also see the religious leaders' paranoia in the back of their minds. They had put something together. Pilate's Roman guard, this unit from 6 to 12 men, would, according to Roman army protocol, be put to death if they went to sleep at their post. And yet, that's the excuse they cook up after all this happens. And so would anyone who broke the Roman seal by moving a stone that was most probably between one and two tons. And the first question is, well, how did Joseph move it into place? Well, when he built a tomb, I'd cut it out of a rock. The stone was part of it. And there was usually a groove that it was sitting in. And it was just a little bit higher than when it was going to end up. So after the body is put in the tomb, the stone can actually be pushed down into the place where it sits over the opening to get into it. This was no plywood fixture in front of the tomb. Remember, Pilate said, make it as secure as you can, which they did. Matthew gives us this information looking back at what happened because Jesus' followers didn't know about these security measures yet. Speaking of Jesus' followers... Do we have some understanding of this in-between time of not knowing what was happening? This isn't emphasized enough 
as we usually go through this passage, and I want to spend just a little bit of time raising these questions, and I hope that's okay because it's not easy. Everything Jesus' followers had hoped for died in Jesus' death on the cross. In death, Jesus' name would just fade into one more failed expectation and hope. There had been many who had claimed to be the Messiah in Israel's history. And it seemed there were more than usual around the time that Jesus was on this earth. So Saturday was marked by confusion Despair, depression, hiding, and silence. As Christ's followers, earthly existence now seemed to be without any glimmer of hope. Consider Mary, the mother of Jesus. Consider Peter and his paralyzing guilt. Consider them all. Burying Jesus with respect and reverence and doing it correctly was all Joseph and Nicodemus could do. But it was so very hard. It meant that they were burying their own hope, the hope that had brought life to their own souls. They still did not understand Jesus' followers. They still did not understand or even expect Jesus to rise from the dead. And you can tell that is true by everybody's response. It's a sobering truth, isn't it, to realize that so many of the people that we know and even love in our families and the people who are our neighbors and co-workers and friends who live in our city and state and region and country and the rest of the world are what some have called Saturday's people who live in the darkness of Saturday's uncertainty with no sure or certain hope or real reason to live, who are miserable on the inside while trying to look in charge and competent on the outside. You could really say that our culture, if we just want to be honest, is almost completely filled with Saturday's people. Our Kent Hughes writes, without the resurrection, we are all Saturday's children. We may see that Christ has done a heroic thing on the cross. We may even see it as the consummate act of love in the universe. But there is no power in just that. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, which means we are wasting our time here. We ought to be with everybody else, sleeping late, binge TV, or trying to play golf on a day when it's 35 degrees outside. But that's not what happened. We read here in chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, when was that? When's the Sabbath passed? At sunset Saturday. So Saturday evening, they were getting ready to do something on the next morning. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, and there's some humor in this, in the midst of the agony, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Did it stop them? No. Then what are they doing? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away or rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they've laid him, where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples, and Mark here says, and Peter. Remember where Mark got most of his information for this gospel? Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. We'll explain that in just a second. Now what we need to do is to put all four gospel accounts together here of this Sunday morning. And we come up with a lot of running around. Tomb was outside the city wall, very close to where the crucifixion happened. So as you're thinking about this, and as you hear who was running where and how many people were really involved, Just remember, this is not a place where the city is spread out over 10 miles from here to the airport. This is a city that's crammed full of people close together. And if you've ever been there, you get a sense of that that's kind of overwhelming. The streets, in a lot of cases, are as narrow as the center aisle in this church. And there's many ways, and they're not all straight. 
Got that? That will help. Okay. On that first Easter morning when it was still dark, at least five women went toward the tomb. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all four. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who's called the other Mary in one of the accounts in Matthew. And then there's Salome. We've already named those three because they're in Mark. And then there's Joanna, who's mentioned along with this group in Luke. And we also have an account of reading in Luke that says at least one other unnamed. At least one other. So there's at least five women trooping through the dark at the beginning as the sun was coming up. What is their purpose? The purpose, as Mark says, was to anoint Jesus' body. And you're going, oh, wait a minute. One of the other accounts said that Joseph and Nicodemus put 75 pounds of spices wrapped in the linen cloth as they did the Jewish burial custom. That's true. This is an anointing of the part that was not covered, which was what? His head. The wrapping of the 75 spices went from the neck down. There was a linen cloth especially for the head, and we know that because the grave clothes are actually described in one of the gospel accounts. So they're going to anoint Jesus' head, even though there was a one- to two-ton stone over the front of the tomb. This would be aromatic oils for the head and what we only can describe as a battered face of Jesus. In addition to the 75 pounds of spices that Nicodemus and Joseph applied on Friday, these oils would help a little bit. A little bit. To preserve the face and head of the body from speedily decaying. And that shows shows you something and tells you something about where these women's hearts were. The decaying process wouldn't be stopped much. But doing this, would it help their hearts? This is very similar to what Joseph and Nicodemus did. This was their attitude. This is what they could do when their hopes were shattered to the person that they had given their life to, that had died right in front of them. They didn't have a way to deal with that. And they certainly didn't have a way to deal with the huge stone across the entrance. But they went anyway. And God provided and worked it all so that we would all be able to find out about what really happened. Well, it begins to get light a little bit as they walk. So when they get close, they could see that the stone had been moved or rolled away. And they certainly weren't expecting this. 
but it obviously suited their purpose, they find out that Jesus' body was gone. And they were rightly upset and didn't know what to do. And apparently they sent Mary Magdalene here back to tell Peter and John about this new development, which John records. I mean, he was the guy trying to catch Peter, or was he the one in front? It's a great account. Mary Magdalene went to Peter and John and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. See, she didn't stay around for an explanation. They sent her as soon as they saw something. Are you starting to see the running? This is, this is really pretty neat. As the other women kind of wait for Mary Magdalene to return, the morning gets even a little bit more lighter, and they go forward again, and they see the angels. One account, a couple of accounts have two, and the others have one. You got to realize that when the gospel writers wrote this, they weren't trying to keep an account of all present accounted for. This isn't an NFL referee trying to see if all the right men are on the field. They're saying each person is saying what they want to give the account of. There was two angels total. This guy um, had kind of a glowing white appearance. Shocking. What did he tell him? Well, we read, he gives an explanation. Jesus is risen. He's not here. Go back and tell everybody. So now who's running back to this city? The rest of them. And in the meantime, Mary Magdalene found Peter and John, who immediately leave her behind as they run to the tomb. Their view of the grave clothes when they get to the tomb is very important in John 20. And it points out that it was at this moment we learned that John personally believed that Christ had risen. Jesus' body is not there. Finally, Mary Magdalene arrives back at the tomb again and is the first person to see the risen Jesus. Did you get all the back and forth? She gets back. All the rest of them had gone to get the rest of the disciples. Peter and John had already done their thing and gone. Okay? It's, it's a little crazy. But it had something for everyone, and Jesus was already meeting the needs as far as what the, the meeting the agony head on with the people that were involved here. And on the same day, did Jesus appear to anyone else? We read that he appears to the other women as they're returning from the tomb. He appears to Peter. And to the Emmaus disciples, 
and to the others, quote, as they are gathered together that evening in Jerusalem. It's a good thing he had a resurrection body. In Matthew chapter 28, there Matthew records that sometime earlier, before the women made it to the tomb, there was a great earthquake that had occurred along with an angel of the Lord descending from heaven to roll away the stone, which he then sat on. That is a great picture. That's how it got open. And remember the Roman guards who were there? Well, what happened to them? When did they disappear? Right then. Upon seeing this angel, his appearance, quote, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. All those soldiers, for fear of him, trembled and became like dead men. Then they hightailed it back into the city to report all that just happened. Why? It wasn't just because they were scared of the angel. Body was gone. They were dead. They had to give the reason really fast. And they were scared to death. The chief priests hurriedly gathered together, remember this is at daybreak, and gave them a sufficient sum of money, telling them to tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were told. So what do you say when somebody says, oh, the disciples just stole the body and hid it? You can honestly say that is the most ridiculous theory that has ever been concocted in the face of the earth. All of his disciples were scared so much that they were hiding And you can give them the facts about the soldiers being there. And you can give them the facts about the stone that was sealed. And you can give them the facts that the tomb was empty, which we're getting to right now. Christianity would have been dead in the water that very morning if someone could have produced Jesus' body. Christ is risen. No, he hadn't. The body's over here. We just moved him to keep him safe. Show the body end of Christianity. Wouldn't have even started. But there was nobody, you see. All the authorities had to do was present Jesus' dead body. One of the best quotes I've ever heard is, they did not produce the body because they could not produce the body. Well, what happened to Jesus' body? He had risen. And that announces the greatest miracle ever upon the earth. Every theory known to man, ancient or modern, which tries to question the validity of Jesus' resurrection is absolutely destroyed by one simple question. Where's the body? Where was it? One of the highlights of my young life, ancient 
history now was hearing Josh McDowell bring some of these facts before thousands of gathered students at the University of Texas when I was a freshman. And then we got to go into the crowd after the facts were presented and talk to people. It's powerful. A lot of people ran away because they knew they didn't have an argument. And even the ones that didn't have an argument, many still did not want to believe and be accountable to their creator. In verse 8, chapter 16, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Trembling describes what was happening to their bodies. These brave, devoted, loving women. Trembling describes what was happening to their body. The Greek word is tromos. What does that sound like? Continuing tremors. Unable to be controlled. Astonishment here describes what was happening in their minds. The Greek word there is ecstasis. What does that sound like? Ecstasy. It indicates their ecstasy of mind being swept beyond their normal selves. And that's all going on at once. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Their silence here can only be referring to the moments of racing from the tomb. They had a mission. They were not diverted. They had to tell about the tomb that he has risen. And they had to tell the disciples. And that was their mission. They were silent. They took off. And you combine this with Matthew 28, 8, and you read this. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Fear and great joy together? How does that work? Ever been there? Why? Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee There you will see him just as he told you. You ever been around a group of people where one person fails miserably and betrays and you know that he was the most fierce lover and devoted of all of you? And then you see him fall apart? They knew what was going on with Peter. This is really special here. Everybody needed to know, but and Peter. He's risen. Saturday's despair and sense of hopelessness turned into something quite different on Sunday. For all of them, but especially Peter, there was once again what? Something they didn't ever expect. Life. True life. 
sure hope and certain hope. If we say we're living, but we are marked by hopelessness and pessimism and despair and holding on to what we want, what does that say about what we really believe is true? Your heart can feel like it's destroyed. Your life can look like it's destroyed. It looks like it's dark. There's no hope. Can you say, He has risen? It is not over. He has something prepared for those he came to save. So why in the world do all of us keep on not walking like we believe that? Why do we give up so very easily? If that's where you are right now, may I make a suggestion? If you're a woman, put yourself in with those five. Pick one. Doesn't make any difference. You just heard the message. You want to run back and tell somebody. And then... Just when you didn't think you had anything to do but tell them, Jesus appeared to them. Now, we're not promising that physical presence, but we have something that those gals didn't have, and that was a completed book full of his promises and truth. And if you're a guy, Peter and John are pretty good to identify with. And if you can't move fast anymore... You got ears. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper here at the close of the service. A short, really brief time where we're remembering what Christ did for us on Friday that made his resurrection so absolutely incredible and so necessary to know that the price he paid for our sin was accepted by God, that is so critical that the condemnation placed on him, that was for us, it's paid for. You can't pay anymore. He paid it all. And that's why at the end of this service, one of the things that, that happens is we look, to the resurrection, the seal, the exclamation point. So this is spiritual nourishment here in a physical form to help us because I am, you are, none of us are clued in as much as we want to be or desire to be on this. 
It's, it's spiritual nourishment to focus and believe Christ and what he said and what he did. It's not for a physical body, obviously. It's for your soul. Let's sing.